Welcome to Graduating Grief, a podcast designed to help you step back into living your life with joy after loss. If you're ready to move from surviving to thriving, you've come to the right place. Here's your host and inspirationista, Sherry Dunleavy. Welcome everyone back to another episode of the Graduating Grief Podcast. And I'm really excited to talk with our guest today, Jerry Fenner, because he's a hospice chaplain and he has his own grief story that led him into the work that he's doing today. And we're going to talk about the spiritual aspect of grieving and what he sees as he is leading people through the the hospice um program and and how people as they're on their way to dying and people who love them who are witnessing this how it can be you know something that is complicated but yet at the same time can be something that is beautiful and healing at the same time so jerry thank you so much for joining us today sherry i'm so glad to be here thank you for for inviting me to to share today so tell me a little bit about your grief journey and how it led you to where you are today. Sure. So back in 2010, I actually started working in hospice and I had been in full-time ministry for 30 years prior to that, uh, but came into hospice in 2010. Well, in 2013, uh, my mother, who was in her early 80s at the time, was going in for a simple knee replacement surgery. And so uh, they live 800 miles from me. And so it was a long journey to get there, but I asked them, I said, okay, do you want me to come and be there for the surgery and and help afterwards? And they're like, no, we've got plenty of help. It's not a problem. Like, okay, that's fine. Uh, I'll be in touch with you the day of the surgery to make sure everything went fine. And sure enough, the surgery went fine. But then about 24 hours afterwards, she started having trouble breathing. And they put her on uh, a BiPAP or maybe a CPAP. They anyway, to they needed, she needed help to breathe. Mm-hmm. And they weren't sure what was happening. The doctors didn't really understand why she would be having any trouble. But her her O2 sats were in terrible shape going down into the 60s and 70s if she didn't have oxygen. So they continued to give her oxygen. They wanted to intubate her, and she rejected that offer and said, no, she did not want that. So it didn't get any better. They could not figure out why it was happening. And so they began calling all the family. And so I have a brother that lives not too far from me. and we met up and traveled to to my parents' home to be with them. And we get there and they find out that she has what's called an interstitial lung disease, which basically there's no cure for that. And the only way that they could keep her oxygen sats at a normal level was to provide uh, copious amounts of oxygen. Mm-hmm. She just needed uh, a tremendous amount of oxygen levels. And they basically told us there, there's not anything that's going to help this. We can't improve it. We can't cure it. Uh, we don't know what else to do. So after about another 24 hours, she said, I just want to go home. 
And we said, well, do you want hospice? And she said, yes, we do. Yes, I do. So we set up hospice. They came in. They brought everything that we needed into the home. And which, you know, working in hospice, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew all of the steps that were going to be taken. Um, so all the equipment was brought in, the bed, the, uh, the oxygen concentrator that she would need. The nurse came to the house and began teaching us how to administer the morphine and everything that she would need to help her breathing. And so I stayed with them uh, during the night. I was there with them 24 hours. She went home on a Sunday and uh, every, everything else in her body was, was strong. Her heart was strong. She had no other underlying issues. But by Tuesday, uh, she had died. And so going from this moment where she's going in for just a, a simple knee replacement surgery to about four or five days later, and she's gone. Mm. And you know, I realized she's in her 80s, but we were not prepared for that. It happened so quickly. And I have three siblings. We were all able to be there. And the family did well together. We worked well together. There was no issues with uh, with family. My dad was uh, still there as well. Uh, all of us grieving in an appropriate way. Um, but uh, I had to go back to working as a chaplain in hospice after all this was over. And that's where it became a challenge for me because I have my own personal grief now that I'm dealing with, and yet I'm walking into a patient's home and working with families who are experiencing their own grief or about to experience their own grief. And I'm still struggling with my own grief issues. And so it became a, a very real challenge for me to, to not incorporate their grief into my grief and to almost intermingle my grief with theirs, uh, with the families. I also found myself different mm -hmm. in the way that I approached people uh, mm -hmm. who were on hospice, the patients, the families. Mm -hmm. I, I tell people, you know, I was a hospice chaplain before my mother died. I was a hospice chaplain after my mother died, but I was not the same hospice chaplain after my mother died. I looked at things much differently then um, than I did beforehand mm -hmm. uh, because I had experienced something very personal. I, I was going through that personal grief myself mm -hmm. and it took several months for me in, in some ways to, to finally reach that point where it no longer bothered me to walk into a patient's home where, where the patient had just died. It could be a struggle. So um, that was, that's kind of my story and what, uh, changed me. Uh, and yet also I think improved my ability to relate to, to people who are in the midst of grief. So let's, let's talk about that because you said it changed you. So first of all, I don't know how you were able to do what you did other than you just knew that you needed to do it. Um, how were you able to take care of others and yet protect yourself? 
that had to be such a challenge or were you able to, did you, because see, when I lost my son, I lost that capacity. I, I was broken open and I just absorbed everything. My pain, the world's pain was my pain. Yeah. I really thought that I would be able to handle it fine. I could compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty good at doing that anyway. <laughs> so right. I thought I could compartmentalize my grief from the patient's grief or the family's grief. And yet one of the first times that I walked into a patient's room, the patient happened to be female about my mother's age. I mean, there were so, some, so many similarities that all of a sudden I literally had to leave the room. I couldn't stay in the room because I knew that I was going to be, you know, pouring out tears right along with the family and that's not going to be helpful. Right. And so I, I had to leave. Thankfully, there was somebody else there from the team present and, mm. you know, they, they could kind of take over. But I, that, uh, that shocked me, scared me, to be honest, because I thought, oh, am, I, am I going to be able to do this? And, and so I, I gave myself uh, some time. I actually was the director for the, the Department of Chaplains mm -hmm. for the company that I work for. And so it, it allowed me to be able to, uh, it allowed me the, the opportunity to assign different <laughs> people to different right. patients. And so I made sure that I gave myself the patients who were newly admitted, who, who, who weren't anywhere uh, near uh, death. And so that way I was less involved with the, the dying process, the, those that were uh, imminently dying. So I did that for a while. And there came a point where I was okay. I could, I could walk into the room and I, I was fine, mm -hmm. but it took some, some time. And, and then there were still occasions when my heart was very tender still for a long time afterwards. And I had to, to be very cautious about, you know, how, how I presented myself in different situations. Um, I love what I do. I love being able to work with the, the people, the patients, the families that I work with. Mm -hmm. And I never had a thought of leaving and doing something else, but I have learned and it's, it's changed me. I think it's made me a better chaplain in the process, but it's certainly been um, a challenge for sure. So you mentioned that that change a couple of times now. So please tell me, how have you changed as a chaplain? What in you is intrinsically different now because of your, your own personal uh, grieving experience? Well, I thought I was uh, an empathetic person before. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my nature anyway. I think I am more empathic now than I was even before my mother's death. Mm -hmm. uh, I have um, I have more empathy and a greater heart, I think, for the pain and the grief that people are experiencing. And I, it's easy for me to put myself in their place and to understand where they are. 
and to really offer more empathy and to have that experience along with them. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to say, oh, I understand because I don't do that. I'm, I'm not going to say that to people, even though I may be experiencing or have experienced a similar grief. It's never the same. And so I don't want to say, oh, I understand. But I, in my heart, I do understand. I know what they're feeling and experiencing and what they might be going through, just the grief itself. And so I offer them a presence, a quiet presence, if that's what they need, uh, probably more than I did before. Isn't that when, when we talk about, um, you know, you're, you're sitting in witness and, and empathy, right? And that is so important for people who are going through the grieving process, just someone who is willing to be there. And you are there for them. Um, is it up until the death? Are you there for them beyond? How does We're that there. work? We are there for them even beyond the death. Mm -hmm. um, we will actually be in contact with the family for up to a year following the death, mm -hmm. uh, making phone calls to them on occasion, um, sending them letters and, and cards to let them know we're thinking about them and that they're uh, certainly open to calling us if they just need to talk or if there's something that that they need some assistance with, they can always contact us. And But we also stay in touch with them. We initiate contact with them uh, throughout that first year just to make sure that they're doing okay. Or if they're having some, some issues with grief, then we offer support groups. We offer one-on-one -on -one counseling with them. Uh, we can even offer referrals if that's what they need to maybe a, a licensed professional counselor. Uh, or, or a therapist. So we make sure that if there's any, any struggles, any complications that they're having when it comes to their grief, that we're there to, to offer them what they need. So one of the components of, of, of the grieving is that there's a difference. You know, it's not even just who you lose, but it's sometimes just who you are, you know, whether you're a man or a woman and, and the differences between, between loss in being a chaplain and helping people through this and um, taking them from their anticipatory grief and grieving to their actual grieving process. What differences do you notice uh, between the two? Between the male two and female? Sexes, between the two sexes, yes. Yeah. Um, I think that generally our society has created this impression that, you know, men don't grieve or men don't express grief. Uh, let's say men don't express grief in, in an emotional outward way. And despite the advances that we've had in that regard, I think that still holds true for a lot of people. Um, that a lot of men have trouble expressing their grief. And I'll even use myself as an example. When my mother died, I really didn't express my grief openly and outwardly, even with my close immediate family, my wife and my kids. Uh, there was an occasion 
and I don't know that I've even told anyone this, but there was an occasion when, for whatever reason, which is unusual because I have five children, um, even though they all are outside the house now, there's still a lot of them coming in and out. But my wife was gone one day. The kids were gone. It was just me by myself in the house. And I think the, the aloneness gave me the opportunity to grieve. And I did. I, um, it was not long after my mother had passed. And I find, found myself just sobbing because there was no one else around. I didn't worry about how it looked, how it was going to be perceived. I didn't, you know, want anyone necessarily to come and and you know put their hand around me and say it's going to be okay. I just felt the need to grieve by myself, and so I did. And that release was very helpful for me. Uh, I think it was a <clears throat> it was a turning point for me even in my grief because it really helped me to be able to express it and get it out. And I think there are a lot of men that are that way. And so I would encourage the, the women who would be listening to your podcast to understand a little bit about how the men in their lives grieve, whether it's their husband or maybe a son or a brother, uh, they're going to grieve differently than, than a woman might grieve. Um, Women, I think, have been given permission to grieve openly and outwardly by society. I'm not sure that that's true when it comes to men. Well, I think it is true, but I don't think men necessarily give themselves that permission to grieve openly and outwardly. And I wish they. So I think that because yeah, I see so that as a difference. Feeling, that release, like what you said, it is a it is a release. And um, I remember when, when our son died, that was the, the one thing they said is that, you know, men and women do grieve differently, but they still grieve. And one of the things of losing a child was that they said, and it, it sometimes compounds the grief of the male because all the supporters go towards the mother. True. Right. Yes. And there's the yes. dad that's, that's grieving and everybody's trying to console the mother because she's a little bit more free with her emotion and her feeling and the dad's the mm -hmm. stoic one. Right. And so, exactly. um, it makes me so sad. I'm so glad I learned that early in so that my husband could be the strong one when I needed one, but I could be the strong person for him when he needed that release. Right. Right. And that's always good. Everyone's grief is going to be as unique as their fingerprints. Mm -hmm. uh, even when they're grieving the same death, because the relationship that they had with that person is different. Mm -hmm. And so everyone grieves a little bit differently. But there's certainly, I think, similarities between how women grieve uh, and, all, and then how men grieve. There's there's similarities, there are differences there, but we need to understand the differences and accept those differences, uh, especially between a husband and wife. Many times that's where the, the challenge lies is in accepting that the other person is going to grieve differently than you do. Because mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it can, well, why, are, why aren't you uh, grieving like this? 
instead of, you know, you know there maybe the husband is very stoic, like you said, and not willing to grieve in front of everyone else. And the wife may be not accepting that. And why aren't you grieving? Why aren't you showing some emotion here? Uh, because everyone grieves differently. Yeah, we just have to understand that. So let's get into the spiritual aspect of, of what you do and uh, okay. the spirituality uh, surrounding, you know, death and dying and grieving, because I would imagine that there are many times that you run into a lot of people who are very angry um, at God, especially that he would allow this to happen or allow someone they love to die. And I feel that a lot of times that anger, um, that can keep you stuck. Right. How do you help people through that? I think the first thing that you have to do is to accept their anger that for whatever reason, they, they are angry. And you know, anger is one of the five stages of grief that people will go through at some point, or maybe more than one point. They may do it more often than, than just once. It may be more than one stage for them. And to accept it and say, that's okay. Um, that's a part of the grieving process in some, in some form. So that's the first step is to just accept it, not try to control it, uh, push it away, or pretend that it doesn't exist except that they're angry and, but help them to understand why. And so to ask them the, the questions, you know, tell me what makes you feel this way and to have them begin to process some of that, because some of them aren't even at a point where they understand why they're feeling this way. They're just angry and they haven't thought through why they're angry. And so as you know, a spiritual counselor, a chaplain, our work is to help them begin to process this and find out why. And maybe some of them come to that point where they say, you know, I'm just mad at God. Mm -hmm. I feel like God could have prevented this. God could have taken it away. He, God could have changed this. And I don't understand why he didn't. And there's no really good answer for that. Mm -hmm. uh, to say that there's a mystery in life and the mystery in death is very accurate. We can't always come up with an answer. And so I don't try to necessarily give answers as to why these things are. What I have experienced is that in 